come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 11 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here. This was a little bit lighter week for movie watching for me, as I only have two mini-reviews for Santa Sangree and The Purge Election Year, but I do have two featured reviews for The Bar that came out in 2017, which is a Spanish film. And then we also have the 2020 release of Underwater. And just to kind of fill you in a little bit, I had watched the first two parts of the Don't Fuck With Cats documentary, which took up some of that time. And I also had just some things going on in life that were making things pretty busy. But I still wanted to go ahead and get this episode out. It will be a little bit shorter than other ones just to kind of give you the heads up there but what i'm going to do is send you over to a musical break to get us started before getting into the mini reviews Nothing ever 
for my first mini review of the week. I got to see Santa Sangri at the Gateway Film Center. This comes from 1989. It is directed by Alejandro Jodorowsky. Also did the story as well as co-wrote the screenplay. Also working with him on the story was Roberto Leone, who also helped co-write the screenplay, and Claudio Argento as well helped them. This stars Axel Jodorowsky, Blanca Guerrera, and Guy Stockwell. This is a drama fantasy horror thriller from Mexico. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is a former circus artist escapes from a mental hospital to rejoin his armless mother, the leader of a strange religious cult, and is forced to enact brutal murders in her name as he becomes her arms. Now, I had heard about this when I was reading through Fangoria's Top 300 Horror Films of All Time issue. Having gotten more into the horror community, I've heard it mentioned here and there, but still one that more knowledgeable fans had seen and I had never. I knew it was wild and was stoked to see, you know, in the theater and on the new 4K transfer, so I made sure of checking that out. And I do have to thank Darren Wilson from over at the Psycho Semantic Podcast, as he had shared the article first, so I started to monitor their website to see when they were showing it. Now, after seeing it, I confirm this is all types of weird. I knew that it was, but I wasn't necessarily expecting what I got here. I don't mean that in a bad way or a slight at all. It is really surreal and dreamlike and at times nightmarish for sure. The first thing I found interesting here is that it takes place at a circus early on. Fenix, who is our main character, and we actually see him as an adult first where he's played by Axel Jodorowsky. And then at this point is the younger version of him who is Aiden Jodorowsky, but he's a boy magician. His mother is Concha, who does the trapeze, and she is Guerrera. Orgo is the ringmaster, who is his father and is married to Concha. And Orgo is played by Guy Stockwell. And then we have the tattooed woman, who she's somewhat of a contortionist, and she wears very skimpy outfits, so you can see that her body is covered. Thelma Tixo is the actress. And then there is... Alma, who she's adopted by the tattooed woman when her mother passes away. The young Alma is portrayed by Favola Alanka Tapia. There's also a, a dwarf in this who is Aladan, who is Jesus Juarez. And we also have an elephant and a bunch of clowns. This sets the stage, but we're seeing people that have abnormalities throughout it. There's also a man who is a soldier who is giant-like. There's a fat prostitute who is Mary Aranez, which I thought was an interesting choice. And then Fenix is in a mental hospital with a bunch of people that have Down syndrome. I'm not listing this as a bad thing. I'm more pointing out that it is normalized here of all these people who don't necessarily follow the norm that we would assume for people. And I found that to be quite interesting, but that also adds to the surreal feel that we have here. And we also get an interesting look at religion. Concha is at first has a church-like place where they worship and it gets torn down. And at first it seems like this Monsignor who is Sergio Bustamante comes to their aid. It isn't until he sees what they're actually worshiping, which is a saint that he claims isn't one who had her arms chopped off after she was raped and then died in a pool of her blood. And after this Monsignor goes in and sees what they're worshiping inside, he tells the businessman to go ahead and, you know, tear it down. Now, this seems to be an interesting duality of religion giving away to capitalism and us losing our morals. But the saint that they're worshiping, which I don't think is real, does make Concha become violent 
after finding out her husband is cheating on her with a tattooed woman and she's out for revenge. And I just kind of feel like they also have a social commentary here about religion and that it makes us do things that might not be the best as well. And it's also intriguing that she's a nun and wants her son to kill for her. The last thing I wanted to talk about with the story that really stuck out to me was I enjoy that this sets the tone early on by starting at a mental hospital. It is hard to blame Fenix. He witnesses his mother attack his father, and then his father cuts his mother's arms off. There's also a sad scene where the elephant is dying as well that really affects Fenix. Plus, seeing what they do to the animal's carcass is pretty horrific for him. There's also some guilt of him finding women attractive as his mother tries to stop him anytime that he does. And I think this goes back to what his father Orgo tried to do to his mother. So I think there's an interesting reveal and in the idea that is not necessarily new here. And if this was a spoiler section that I was going to have for this, I would definitely delve into here because it's a pretty popular movie that I think this is borrowing from. But I liked what they did here. This movie does run a bit long, comes in at about two hours and seven minutes. I don't think that's necessary. Now, I don't want you to think I got bored because this movie is so crazy and surreal that I was intrigued what was going on until the end. It does build a story that was engaging and I like the ending as well. I just think there's some filler in here that probably could have been trimmed to make it a little bit tighter. Um, and I could, there's a lot of things in here I wasn't expecting as well, but I did like the reveal before, I did guess the reveal before we got it as well. Now, the act was really good though. Axel did a good job at portraying this crazy character. He escapes, and I like that he never really seems stable to us. There's this weird feeling that comes with it, though, as the things around him are just crazy as well. And I think that makes it kind of hard to figure out, you know, what's real and what's not. Guerrera, I thought, was good as the mother who snapped and is now overbearing. It helps to drive the story and the tension. Stockwell is a pig, but I also had found him quite hilarious at times. He's not a great father for sure. Tixo was interesting, and I really haven't brought her up yet, but Alma grows up to be Sabrina Dennison, and I found her to be quite attractive and realized that she's the one that's on the posters that I've always seen for this movie, so I thought that was interesting. Adam and Tapio were fine as well to round out the rest of the cast for what was needed. As for the effects, that was something that looked to be done practical. Now, I saw this in 4K, and I could tell some of what were done didn't look the realest that way, but I'm not going to harp on it. I do find it interesting that it goes a bit over the top at blood at times. I didn't hate it, but the blood doesn't necessarily look real, which helps me not to cringe as much from what we got. There's some super creepy scene with a bunch of women that are painted white. That did get under my skin, and I would also say the cinematography was good, and it makes, you know, with that surreal feel that I keep bringing up. The last thing would be the soundtrack. I really like what they did here. As they balance between the ambient and non-ambient music, this really helps with that feel, and I keep bringing that up, and it also helps drive the tension. I don't always notice the score of movies, but this one I did, and it really fit for what was needed, and I would consider this you know, to listen to while I'm writing. Now, I have to say, and I've already said it before, but I'm going to re reiterate this. This is a wild one that I'd heard about. It does such a great job in establishing this world that seems like ours, but different enough. I love how they build the lead to be unreliable, and he's driven the story here along with his mother. I do think it runs a bit long, but I never really got bored. The effects weren't always realistic, but I still liked what we got, and the cinematography was well done in developing the aesthetic. The soundtrack really helps to build tension. Overall, I think this is a really good movie and could probably go up after another viewing or two for sure now that I kind of know how, what everything that's happening and just kind of piecing together things that I might have missed. So my rating here is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. All right, and for the second film that I saw this week would be The Purge Election Year. 
This is from 2016. This is written and directed by James DeMonico. It stars Frank Grillo, Elizabeth Mitchell, and Michaelty Williamson. This is an action horror sci-fi thriller from the United States and Japan. This is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a former police sergeant, Barnes, who is Grillo, becomes head of security for Senator Charlie Roan, who is Mitchell, a presidential candidate who is targeted for death on purge night due to her vow to eliminate the purge. Now, if you've read any of my previous reviews or listened to my thoughts on these movies um, on this podcast... I was pretty down on my first viewing of the original, but came up after a second viewing of it just recently. The Purge Anarchy has held up after both viewings, and I've never seen this one here, so it's the first time viewing. I know my family thought it was good, and I'll admit I was a bit leery seeing that this one went even more political with the subtitle being election year. And what I'll do here real quick is just recap some of the characters. Um, I've already said about the two stars. Williamson is a deli owner, Joe Dixon, and his employee is Marcos, who is Joseph Julian Soria. There is a regular that comes there who is Lainey Rucker, who is Betty Gabriel. And there is a neo-Nazi who is Earl Danzinger, played by Terry Serpico. Uh, There's Dante Bishop, who is Edwin Hodge, who is the bloody stranger in the original movie. And then... The head of the New Founding Fathers is Minister Caleb Warrens, who's Raymond J. Barry. As I've said in my other reviews for the movies in the series, I definitely could see this going into effect in the future of our country, especially the path that we're currently on. This one, though, I think really starts to get more on the nose than any of the other ones on its political stance, and that makes it not work as well for me. I do think that it has to continue to develop the story, though. We see that the New Founding Fathers are corrupt assuming power as they continue to win the presidency. They change the rules to take out Charlie, who is the senator, and it really feels like Rome right before its fall. There's the idea of losing our humanity despite what they say the purge is actually used for. Now, we learned in the previous films, and what we get here, the government is using this to kill off the elderly and the poor to help the economy. They, of course, do not admit to it, though. It is interesting, as the percentage of these things in the budget for the government is pretty low, so I'm not sure if this would actually have the effect the movie is stating. I did like that it introduces us to murder tourism, where in this one we get a bunch of people from Europe coming over here to actually attend and participate in Purge Night. So there's a new economic effect from people like that coming here to, to, you know, take part. I did like... Though the social commentary about insurance going up due to the purge, which is fitting as we are currently seeing insurance coming along a similar way in the medical field. I also don't think that it's a coincidence that the group used to try to take Charlie out are neo-Nazis. This is one of those things that I feel is a bit heavy-handed. My girlfriend and I were watching this, and she even pointed out that, that the NFF or the New Founding Fathers, is all older white guys with some older women sprinkled in. It really does seem to be an offshoot of the right. I don't really want to delve into that, but I think that's the message they're trying to get across here, and I don't really think it works as well. I didn't find this one as interesting as a previous one, even though it is similar where we have people out and about in the purge. I don't want to come off saying that this is boring because that's not the case. I just think by going as political here as it does, it makes me lose interest and they focus on it too much. Seeing the NFF and their purge mass that they're using was interesting though, as what they're preaching isn't very Christian-like. 
I do think that's the uh, I do think that's another social commentary on using religion as a crutch, which I can get behind. I do think that the ending is a bit too sappy and really kind of kills making any more movies after this, which makes sense why the fourth is a prequel. I don't hate that aspect of it though, as sometimes things just run their course and they're self-aware. I did hear of possibly a fifth movie, and I believe the two seasons of the show are before this one for obvious reasons. I think that the acting was good though. Grillo really does embody this main character. I like that what he went through in the previous movie shapes the character that he is here. We don't get a lot of growth from him aside from him willing to back down from Charlie for the right reasons. Mitchell I thought was good. I like seeing that she's really someone who is tackling the issue of this event head on and does that well. I like seeing how headstrong she is, but she really doesn't have growth either. And I feel bad for Williamson as he tries to keep the little store that's his life and he has to face the decision of banning it to live on uh, because we get to see right before the purge starts that they are his insurance company is jacking up his rates and he's not able to afford the premiums at the moment. Uh, Sorry, I actually really liked and thought he stole the show. He's idealistic and not being from the United States, I think it's cool for someone to be so set on fixing this country that we get in this movie. I thought it was interesting seeing Gabriel here because the only thing I ever really remember her seeing her in is Get Out. So she was good as well. Serpico is the leader of, like I said, of the neo-Nazis and he fit the look of them. Secor and Hodge are both solid in their roles. The only person I didn't really care for was was Brittany Mirabile, who plays Kimmy. She's a supposed to be a high school student, but she looks much older than the role she's supposed to be playing. And she gets into it with Joe and then goes way over the top with craziness. I just didn't really find her interesting and just her over the top performance really kind of just bothered me. As for the effects, I thought they were fine. I think that we get some interesting deaths and the blood looks good for the most part. The masses of people who are from Europe that are here are creepy and look great. They're wearing founding fathers or iconic United States people from history, which is perverting what those guys stood for. The car that the schoolgirls drive up in was cool, and just what most of the people are wearing during this event as well. I What I didn't like, though, was the CGI. There's some gunshot and some wounds and blood that they decided to use this, and it looked bad to the point where I groaned audibly. But I think the cinematography was good overall in my opinion. With that said, I didn't really care for this one as much as the previous, but I don't hate it. I do think this took a step back with how political the messages go and is too on the nose. I don't mind developing the politics, that's not the issue, and showing how corrupt this event is, as well as the NFF. The acting I thought was solid overall. The movie isn't necessarily boring. The ending is a bit too upbeat. The costumes are great, the practical effects are good, and the CGI really isn't so much. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it didn't take me out of it either. Overall, I would say this is just above average, yet still enjoyable. And if you've been following the series, I would say, you know, to give it a viewing just to kind of complete that. So I have to come in here with a 7 out of 10. As I was saying in my intro earlier, those were the only two movies that I saw. I did see the two first episodes of the Don't Fuck With Cats documentary, which as somebody who loves cats as well as just animals in general, that was a tough watch, but I would recommend it as they do cut away from showing a lot of the things and just interesting to see what these people do to try to, you know, figure out everything that's going on there. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is send us over to the trailer for my first featured review of The Bar. 
Ah, del pantón, tomate. Tomar por culo todo el mundo. personas en el centro de Madrid y nadie dice nada. No están tapando los asesinatos. Si el peligro es tan grande no van a parar ante nada. Puede que el asesino no esté fuera sino aquí dentro. ¡No lo toques! ¿Cómo estás disfrutando, zorra? Nos van a meter ahí abajo. El día de la ira ha llegado. ¡Que estemos en el mar! My first featured review for this week is going to be The Bar. This comes from 2017. It is co-written and directed by Alex D. Ala Glacia. And then the co-writer with him was Jorge Guillerva Chivara. This stars Blanca Suarez, Mario Casas, and Carmen Maki. This is a comedy horror thriller. And the countries of origin are Spain and Argentina. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, In a bustling downtown Madrid, a loud gunshot and two mysterious deaths trap a motley assortment of common urbanites in a decrepit central bar while paranoia and suspicion force the terrified regulars to turn on each other. Now, I remember hearing about this while it was making its festival run. At the time, I didn't realize that it was co-written and directed by Iglesia, as that's a, a director I've seen a couple of his films and really liked both of them. He has such an interesting feel to the characters that he brings, as well as to the movies. I decided to check this out as when I used the randomizer, this is the number that came up. Now, we start in the busy streets of Madrid. At first, we're following Elena, who is Suarez, as she talks to her friend over the phone. Elena has a date at a fancy hotel slash bar from what she makes it out to sound like. And the camera shifts to show us Trini, who is Maki. She is buying fruit but tells the man to put it on her tab as we get a glimpse that she doesn't have the money to pay for it. Then there's Sergio, who is Alejandro Awada, who is a homeless man. And then it shifts between these three as they all converge at a bar. Now the bar is run by Amparo, who is Tara Lee Pavez, and then her employee is Sauter who is Sukun de la Rosa, and inside is Israel, who is Jaime Ordonez, who I believe is the police officer, and there's a businessman who is Andreas, who is Joaquin Clement. Now, I could have that backwards, but those are the, there's a police officer and a businessman for sure. And then there's also a hipster who is on his phone listening to music over headphones. He is Nacho, who is Casas. The three we meet in the streets come into this place, along with three other men. And then one of them goes into the bathroom without buying anything, which pisses Amparo off. Then one man goes to leave and is immediately shot in the head. This freaks out those in the bar who heard it, and they see the mass panic outside of people running away. Another guy goes to check it out, and he's shot as well. This causes the group inside to panic even more, but then order is brought back by the police officer. Now at the time we don't really know he's a cop but we end up figuring out when he pulls a gun out and takes charge with that weapon. They decide the next thing to do would be to turn on the television to the news to see if there's anything there but there's no report of what happened at this time. 
but it gets weird when the bodies are removed, including the blood, but nobody sees that happen. So I didn't know at this point if this was going to be supernatural or not. The news finally has a report, but what they're stating is that there's a fire downtown and they've blocked the area off. And then a crew shows up outside setting tires on fire and the people inside think this is a cover up to what is really actually happening. And then everyone forgets about the man that's in the bathroom until he starts to yell. The handle is shot off and he emerges. His veins are black and his eyes are bulging and they have a milky film look over him. As he dies, he tells them not to touch him. And inside the bathroom, they find syringes. And they have this look about him. I first thought they were EpiPens, but they're actually more of like military grade syringes for something inside. And then they also find his phone with him wearing a military outfit. Now they try to make a call out to help with that. And it takes them some time to find service as most everybody else tried theirs and they didn't work. But they end up finding service. But they also find pictures of this man in a military outfit as well as people what looks to be in Africa. Their fear becomes that he was infected with something and that is now spread to them. And this starts to create paranoia and distrust as to who could be infected or who is not infected or is there even an infection to worry about so this causes them to divide in half with the half that they believe to be infected are sent to the cellar and they're locked in now i want to end my recap there as i don't really want to spoil anything i'm gonna have a spoiler section here at the very end of this as i think after i started writing this review and you know talking it out through this podcast i think i figured out exactly what was happening here so i'll get to that later but i want to get back to i've is that i've realized the more that i've branched out in my horror watching the more that i really dig movies that are contained especially in something like this where they can't get out what i find interesting is there's a lot left unexplained and i formed what i think actually happened here And if you like movies like that, where you actually have to sit down and think about it, I think you'll be a fan here for sure as I was of this. What I find interesting is we have a group of characters that are diverse, and their alliance are constantly changing. On top of that, we explore stereotypes that are not exactly what they are, as in the characters seem to be that, but they actually are much deeper than that, and I think that makes it even more interesting. Like, for example, we have Nacho. He's a hipster, so the men who take charge think he's weak, and there's this weird aspect where they think he could be a terrorist, as they're talking about that what could be happening outside could be terrorism, and Nacho starts acting funny, and I'm not really sure why. And then when Elena sees this and they are singling him out, she comes to his aid. And there's also a moment where we see that Nacho isn't as weak and it is scary to Elena where she starts to question being on his side. And then going from that, Elena is also an intriguing character for me. She dresses very nice, but we see that despite how good looking she is, she actually has quite low self-esteem. She keeps going for the wrong guys and she puts on a front to protect herself. And then similar to that, Trini comes off as uppity as she comes into the bar almost daily to play the slot machine that is there. There's a hint that there was something about her earlier, but we see that when she's ignoring people, she's not doing this because she thinks she's better, but there's something that she's hiding about her personal life and doesn't want anybody to figure that out. And then we also have Satyr, who's extremely nice, but he's ignored a lot. This bothers him and he bottles it up and then explodes near the end of the movie here which i did find to be interesting because i can relate to that myself and then we have the two tough guys who take charge to start us off as well one of them is hiding something inside of his briefcase that would be considered deviant i like this idea 
of him portraying what he thinks is normal on the outside. Now, there's nothing wrong with his fetish, but being what it is, he would be looked down upon, especially by males. And then on the other side, we have the police officer who's an alcoholic and lost his wife and child because of it, as well as his job. And then I also need to talk about Sergio. He's a homeless alcoholic that Amparo has a soft spot for and tries to help. He's constantly spouting out Bible verses, which both amazed me that he remembers all of them and can reference back so it fits to what he's you know, talking about. But it also scares me. He does a lot of things that go against what is considered Christian beliefs, and I love the perversion of religion with that idea. And then I thought the pacing here was fine. I did have some issues though. I think the runtime of 102 minutes is a bit long. I never necessarily got bored, but I do think that we get some things that are a bit repetitive and that could have been trimmed to tighten this up. And this is also considered a comedy, but Iglesia knows how to use that to his advantage. It never took me out or ruined the tension. I did like how this ended up as well, especially with the implications that could come from it, with what the character does, as well as if there you know, was something more going on. I thought Casas was really good in his role and seeing the change that came over him worked for me. Suarez was another one that I felt about the same. We see from the beginning how she looks and acts to the character we get at the end are different, and I thought that really worked. Awada was great as well. He's crazy from the start, but seeing him take advantage of what is going on around him makes sense. And being that he's homeless, he has to do what he has to to survive. So I think that really makes sense for everything that we get here. Maki, Pavez, Clement, Rosa, Ordonez, and the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. As for the effects, we don't really get a lot of them, and I don't think we needed to. I'm not sure the gunshots that we got, if they were done practically or CGI, but regardless of, it ended up looking real to me. And I think a key there is that they, we see them from far enough away where you can't critique it too much, and I thought that was strategic. And plus it happened so quickly. You get some wounds where characters start to fight each other, and I thought the blood looked good from that. The look of the military man was creepy. There's also a scene where a character burns their hands, and I thought the aftermath of that looked really good. The cinematography was also good, and I had no issues there. Now with that said, after this movie ended, I thought it was alright. I couldn't write my review until the next day, as I was tired, so I had time to reflect. And I'm glad that I did that, as the more I sat on it and thought about it, the more I realized that I liked it. The contained horror aspect really is good for me. It drives attention as distrust and paranoia grows. The acting helps to bring these diverse characters that aren't that different from each other to life. Despite me thinking the runtime is a bit long, I still thought it was enjoyable and never boring. The effects worked and I thought it was shot fine. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it doesn't hurt it for me. I thought it was fitting for what was needed. I'd have to say I think this is a good movie and would recommend giving this a viewing. I will warn you though, this is from Spain, so I had to watch it in Spanish with subtitles on. That's an issue, I would avoid this, but if not and this sounds interesting, I'd say give it a go. And my rating here is gonna be an eight out of 10. And what I'm gonna go ahead and do now is cut over to some spoilers here. All right, and since we never actually figure out what is going on here, which I do think helps in building the mystery. I was wondering if this was gonna go supernatural or not, but nothing points to that as we watch things. And it does seem like a cover up like they think. And then it wasn't until I started writing this that I think I figured out what happened, which I believe what it is. The man that was from the military that locks himself in the bathroom was being followed by the military. The government thinks he's infected with something. So when the two men step outside, they're killed. And they also blocked out of this area and come up with a cover story of a fire by setting you know tires on fire to create that black smoke 
I do really wonder if there is an infection that is contagious or not, or if there's even an infection in general. As Elena used his phone, so in theory, she would be spreading it like a contagion as a new patient zero if there was an infection as he did have his phone in the bathroom with him. Seeing the group break down and not trusting each other as the fear of what is happening and the infection possibly makes it, you know, work much better regardless. And I think, you know, seeing society break down as it does makes sense on this scale for sure. Yes, yeah, so this is a very small spoiler section, but what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my next featured review. Listen carefully. You are now 5,000 miles from land, and you're descending seven miles to the bottom of the ocean. See you all in a month. Here we go. We're gonna do this, let's do this. from one to ten. How bad's my rig? Ten. We drilled to the bottom of the ocean and we don't know what came out. Gotta get to the station. How did we even get there? We walk up. We just gotta walk with insufficient oxygen across the bottom of the ocean. We don't know what's out there. Worst idea ever! Turn your lights off. What is that? What is that? What is happening? There's something following us. my second featured review of this episode as well as my second 2020 horror movie of this year i am doing underwater this is directed by william eubank it comes from a story by brian duffield and he also co-wrote it with adam kozad this stars kristen stewart jessica henwick and tj miller this is an action drama horror mystery sci-fi thriller from the united states it is sitting on a 6.2 on imdb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being a crew of aquatic researchers work to get to safety after an earthquake devastates their subterranean laboratory, but the crew has more than the ocean seabed to fear. Now, when I first started hearing about this, it intrigued me. I both love and am terrified of what could be at the bottom of the ocean. Seeing that this had what looked to be monsters ticked another box for me, and I advise that this could technically fall into the Lovecraftian elements as well. Now we start with this 
getting newspapers that are filling us in with the backstory. There's the TN Corporation that has decided to drill at the bottom of the ocean. And I believe it's for creating energy. There have been reports of seeing something that might be quite big and reports that there could be some kind of creatures down there. But through the headlines, we see that this is shot down by the company as just rumors. And then it takes us to Nora, who is Stuart. She's brushing her teeth and we get the feel of this place that she's in. The lights don't seem to be reliable. It's just long tunnels of long tunnels of concrete with just doors on it. And we're close to being seven miles under the ocean, as this is the deepest operation that there's ever been. The place is then rocked by an earthquake. Nora makes it to a room where she's joined by Rodrigo, who is Mamadou Athi, who's another worker that she knows his name, but they seem to have never met or really know each other. She's trying to get the door shut to prevent the facility from destroying itself due to the pressure. As the water is getting through, so there's been punctures inside of the outer walls, and she has to kill two of her other co-workers as they won't make it in time. So it's one of those, we have to sacrifice the two for possibly the many. And the two get knocked out as the place is shifting due to more earthquakes and more just things like that as items in the room just kind of get flung around. And when they come to, they leave the room and try to look for a way out as they're trying to make it to some escape pods. Now this brings them as they go to Paul, who is Miller. We get the captain, who is Vincent Castle. Smith, who is John Gallagher Jr and Emily, who is Henwick. The plan that Captain comes up with is to get to the ocean floor, walk across to where the giant drill that is doing the operation here is housed. This is something that's never been done before, but on their way, they also encounter something that the world has never seen before as well. Now, I wanted to go a little bit lighter on the recap here, as there's not really a whole lot to the story, and if you've seen the trailer, you know some of the things actually are delved into a little bit more there. Now the goal is to survive, and they don't have a lot of time, and there could be something down there with them. This idea is what is really driving the tension, is all of that to put together. And I do have to admit, I did get bored with this for a good stretch. It's odd as the runtime is pretty normal at about 95 minutes, I just think they focus on some of the wrong things for me. Now, some of the things that I did like was introducing the backstory as well as the epilogue through newspaper headlines. This is something that's done before, but I think that you can use it in an interesting way to get information out quickly without just having flat out characters telling us things. And it hints at what we can expect to happen as well. Going along with that, I like the characters that we get because the job that they're doing down there Nora is able to easily fix computers, but she points out that she's a mechanical engineer, so I buy everything that she does from that point on. Not everyone can do it, which makes it even more believable. Everyone down there, though, would be smart or really good at something, as they wouldn't just send down anyone, you know, this far under the ocean. When they know things about the science behind it, I don't really question it because of these reasons. As I was saying earlier, I did get bored here. It doesn't waste any time getting into the crux of what destroys the facility that they're in. I almost think that it might work against the movie jumping into it that quickly, and I think that might be part of my problem is I really didn't care about anyone as they don't really get established. I'll delve more into this with the acting for each character, but that's what I thought when I was walking home after leaving the theater. The tension never really builds from there either as well. I mean, I did think 
about how they need to hurry before it's too late and then when they see the creatures that add to it as well it just feels too safe for whatever reason and we also get a setup for a sequel if they so decide and seeing the box office briefly that might not be the case now i know a lot of people probably won't see this or are ready to bash stewart for her performance and i'll admit she isn't great i do think she's fine though especially since it can be explained by how smart she is she did have a husband, but that doesn't mean she can't be cold like she is here, as she doesn't really show any emotion, which is par for the course for Stuart. But like I was saying, because she's so smart and is a mechanical engineer, I think it's probably because that's what makes her almost awkward, and it makes it more believable for me. Now, we do get to see her in a bra for a good portion of this, as well as her underwear, so if that's something that interests you, that is something you can see. Same goes for Henwick, who I did think was fine in her performance overall. She does show the most fear of anybody, which is good. Miller tries to be funny, but it really didn't work here as well. Not that I disliked him, it just seemed a little bit forced in this movie. And I almost think that they're trying to play him up that he might be on the spectrum of autism, but I'm not 100% sure there. There's just some weird things about his character. Castle shows some signs that he could be losing it, but it never goes anywhere. And I think that is because they don't establish any of these characters as to what their normal is for their character. And I think if we would have gotten that, something like what Castle is showing here could have had more emotional impact as trying to see them survive, in my opinion. Gallagher, I thought, was really underutilized, and the same could be said for Athy. The effects were something I was curious about coming in. This does go pretty CGI heavy, but to be honest, I was fine with it. I believe that these people were inside of this facility that is at the bottom of the ocean and it is falling apart. I do believe they're doing what they can to survive. The underwater scenes look really good, as do some of the deaths that we see. Now for the underwater scenes, they make it really murky, which makes sense with how dark it would be down there. And there would just be things floating in the water that would just make it, you know, murky, which could be including sand or just the remnants of just anything that has passed away. Now the creatures I've alluded to are pretty much done in CGI, but I wasn't really bothered by it and they looked pretty real. And I think a lot of that goes back to, you know, being at the bottom of the ocean, so it's hard to see them. And I think that works in its favor. I didn't have any issues with the effects overall. I'll have a brief spoiler section at the end so I can delve a little bit more into a couple things, but I did think the cinematography was pretty solid as well. Now with that said, I thought this movie did some good things, but just fell flat for me. There are some believable parts of the story, and it is a setting that makes me feel uncomfortable with something I believe to be true about the bottom of the ocean. The movie though, just like I said, was boring. And I think part of that could be the lack of fleshing out characters, especially with the ability of these actors. They went heavy with the CGI, but I didn't have issues with that. The murkiness of the water does help there. The soundtrack didn't really stand out for me, aside from the use of alarms. They did make some scenes quite tense for me. Overall, I would say this is slightly above average. I enjoyed the movie, but I probably won't revisit it unless I have to. My rating here would be a six out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do now is cut over to a spoiler section. Now, what I wanted to talk about was what, at first, about the situation they're in. The synopsis, I'm assuming, is trying to avoid spoilers. But the earthquake, I'm assuming, was actually this giant creature freeing itself, as the drill has probably given it enough leeway to do that. It is attracted to light, which makes sense as the bottom of the ocean, there's not a whole lot of that. And in destroying the base of the operations, I think is in part due to 
them having lights mounted all over this outside of it. Now, what I really wanted to delve into, though, was my statement about this being Lovecraftian, because I completely think that the monster at the end that's giant is actually Cthulhu. It has tentacles on his face and is a giant sea creature. I did like that it has these holes on it that are like caves, and inside of these are these smaller monsters living in that. And then we see even tinier ones that are similar to the thing that comes out of people's chests in Alien. That's some of the things I just wanted to point out here. Like I said, nothing too crazy or kind of to delve into. And like I said, they set it up for a sequel as the TN Corporation denies everything that happened down there. And they're going to actually rebuild and try to restart this operation. This almost feels like it could be almost a kaiju movie. And I think that is kind of intriguing. And... I would be intrigued to see where they would want to go with a sequel. I just think because of how bad that it bombed as this was a movie that was acquired during the merger between with uh, 20th Century Fox. And so this became just a dump movie by, you know, dropping it here in January, which if you want to hear a great thing about that. Check out his and hers podcast with JP and Carly because they really go into what, you know, dump movies and things like that. I just think this is one that... As I said, they focus on the wrong thing, so it kind of ended up hurting everything in the end. But with that said, I don't really have anything else that I wanted to delve into this movie with spoilers. So I'm going to kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
Okay, I want to thank you once again for listening to episode 11 here. Just to kind of close out for some housekeeping. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews or any other things that I kind of do, that's at Reviews of the Dead. And that is at horrorreview.webnode.com. And I'll also have that link in the show notes. Facebook, you can reach me at David Mishkin Garrett Jr. You can go ahead and add me on there if you'd like. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Same thing there. And on Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. That Flick Chat app is Journey with a Cinephile is the code there. And that is kind of getting a little bit more interaction going on. Not a lot, but you know, still working on that. And I do have it on most of the major podcatchers now. So if you could do me a favor, if you get a chance, if you like anything or dislike anything, if you could leave me a review on there, you know, either just a star or numeric review, whatever they, you know, do on that, as well as anything written. Just because I would like the feedback to, you know, figure out anything that I'm doing that you don't like or, you know, anything that I'm doing that you do enjoy. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm always somebody who, you know, can take feedback. And I always want to kind of make this show better, you know, to kind of get it to more listeners as well. And my thoughts for the next episode, this is going to be the last one for January. And when I did the randomizer, I'm going to, the one that came up that I selected there is going to be the R-rated cut of Tammy and the T-Rex. And I had an actress, Jamie Bernadette, reach out on a account that I manage on Instagram, which is Horror Fans Worldwide, about her new film, The Sixth Friend, is technically getting its wide release now. It's a couple years old from what I was looking at IMDb, but like I said, the official release now is for this year. So I'm going to watch that and do a review there as well. So that's what my plan is for the next episode. I once again want to thank you for listening, and this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.